You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are back with our second week discussing Absolution by Murder, chapters 8 to 12, by Peter Tremaine. Herds has challenged me to solve this Dark Ages mystery set in the year 664, Anno Domini. Anno Domini, you getting all Latin-y up in, up in this heckin'... This heckin' podcast. I don't even know if I got that right, Anno to be honest. Domini. Did I? I think that's right. Yeah, you're, you're our lord. That sounds right to me. Um, yeah, I mean, there is a lot of gratuitous Latin in this book, so it, it makes sense. Oh, uh, <laughs> if we didn't have something so special to continue on with after this, I would absolutely take us through the name of the oh, Rose goodness. immediately. I've only heard rumors of the name of the Rose. Apparently it is- mostly untranslated or something like it's it, it, no what's no. going on it, there it is written gratuitously by a bit of a self-righteous nerd oh okay so okay. there's there's it's large not, uh, passages roman... of just convolution okay good <laughs> it's not a roman murder mystery that's been translated and no, no. lies steeped in the mystery no okay it's a i want to say i'm not 100 percent certain on this because i haven't been able to research this because i'm not the expert this week but i want to say it's from the same era of historical murder mysteries as this one. But for this week, we are, of course, discussing Absolution by Murder, chapters 8 to 12, in, in which you must solve the murder of of apparently multiple characters. Uh, the last thing that happened at the end of this well, stretch of chapters is that is yeah, a, we, a it's, bishop it's, it's has died. It's difficult to say what's happened. Difficult to say what's happened? What do you mean? We're more than two-thirds of the way through the book. All that it says is that you know, he's died. That's that's all we know. We have had our second death. It is very suspicious. It's very suspicious, but not there's yet, there's no yet. hard evidence to go on right here. All we have to go on is the word of his secretary, Wigged. That's true. Wigged. But yeah, we'll I we'll get to him. found this stretch of chapters fascinating because it is through and through the interrogation yes. stretch. Every chapter is one witness. <laughs> like, it's great. For how many characters there are in this book, I was very surprised with how long the interrogations went on for. Well, it's because it's interspersed with a lot of discussion of the, the times of day and the practices of the Abbey. Apparently, uh, Hilda, who has quite a prominent role in this book, is is Saint Hilda and is a real historical figure. I did not and know And I'm that. impressed that he has chosen to spotlight Hilda as this, like, kind of neurotic, concerned character. <laughs> it's very, it's a very bold characterization, which I actually really enjoy. There's there's one really great bit in uh, Chapter 9 where Fidelma has just let their first interrogated yes. suspect go. It's so good. <laughs> and she's like, oh, well, you know, back in Ireland, this is the way I'd do things. I'd have the authority to let someone go. And Hilda and Oswia, they're like, uh, where he says, I don't think you're as ignorant of yes. the law of this land as you're making it out to be. And then Fidelma says, <laughs> don't you think that? Like... Mm. Yeah. She's very coy with him the way that she kind of go she kind of spars words with King Oswe. She she's kind of playful, which is interesting. But the reason I wanted to bring this up as part of this discussion is because I was really fascinated by the idea that mm. Peter Tremaine has imposed Sister Fidelma as the reason that Oswe sided with Rome because he's like these Britons are just too much trouble. <laughs> Possibly. I mean, it's definitely something to think about. Like, if we are looking at the dichotomy between Rome and uh, and Ireland, right? That's that's the whole point of why we have uh, Adolf and Sister Vidalma. It's why we're looking at the character of King Oswe, who 
seems is he's, he follows the teachings of Ireland and yet he chooses Rome in the end. Yeah. And you're, you're saying that Fidelma is like the reason that's what well, Peter wants. To- I, I'm not saying that's my final answer, but that was definitely the one that stuck with me the longest sure. through this stretch. Yeah, sure. Towards the back half of this stretch of chapters, we do start to talk a little bit about how his family is like rebelling internally a little bit. We start to look at issues that his court has had with cohabitation sure and there's a suggestion that trying to bring the family unit back in line using the <laughs> roman system sure uh like would that. fix his problems yeah as you say he has a, a son who's kind of unruly he has another son who's sort of hanging in the background possibly looking to like take power in the long run yeah he has his wife who's pushed him into this this discussion in the first place, this might have been a setup to try and trick him. Fidelma oversteps her boundaries and lets the beggar go. And he says, I will not have you killed. I will not flog you. Just don't do it again. He's surprisingly restrained for someone who, as Adolf says, actually, or he thinks one word from the king and it'll be both our heads. Yeah, it's very much the like image of the chivalrous king that we get presented in storytelling a lot, yeah. but not necessarily in history, which is why I think Oswe is like so fascinating for this story, because I have to assume mm. that for a, you know, big history nerd like Peter Beresford-Ellis, <laughs> that- Historian, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that there is there is an accuracy to the way that he's portraying Oswe here, but it's like, it, it's almost too archetypal to make sense. Yeah, I did want to talk about that scene actually, where uh, we- for the most part, uh, Sister Fidelma is, she's the progressive one. She's the one who's on top of things. She's open to new ideas, uh, as opposed to Adolf, who is kind of a step behind. Although one thing I do want to put about Adolf is that he does know how to speak with the locals. That is something that he is kind of known to do. There is a particular scene, like I mentioned, the the yellow plague victim who gets stoned and Adolf says, I have heard of your sophisticated locations where you hold sick people together and they are allowed to be cared for much more efficiently. Like he's, he's talking about a hospital, but um, you know, it's, it's this almost kind of comical situation where we're, where we're basically saying maybe you shouldn't throw rocks at people in the street and kill them. Like maybe that's not such a good idea. I think it's also really fascinating how like the premise of the cohabitation and the respect that Oswe gives to sister Fidelma is like, antithetical to a lot of the thoughts of what old-fashioned used to be you know this is centuries before modern feminism but we still have a very respectful engagement between you know Fidelma and Oswe and Adolf and like they're still not entirely on terms with each other but no no but they're making the effort and that's like the important part yeah it's like absent of the familiar conflicts that we know from most of murder mystery, that sort of stuff is still there, but it's it, it just doesn't feel like it's saying anything about modernity, which I kind of I kind of enjoyed. It's very escapist <laughs> yeah. in a way. You know? I mean, on, on the topic of, of escapism, right? I, I actually kind of enjoy that like we've we've just had it announced that Deus did it has died, but apart from that, the last 12 chapters, you know, we're we're two thirds of the way through the novel. It's been fairly uneventful in terms of like actual threats to our characters. Like Oswe could have had our heads cut off, but like 
that would end the novel, so it's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that is interesting. Maybe that's the whole reason he's portrayed as nice, is because, like, if he was portrayed authentically, quickly. the book would be over. It's, it's quite possible. It's quite possible. Um, <laughs> I had not considered it that way. I that's mean, very funny. It, it's true, though. Like, if he wasn't, really like, is. a respectful king to the characters who he's working with, he'd just have them killed and that'd be the end oh, of it. So I good. mean, we saw how they, how they again, to bring it back to the beggar again. Wow, maybe he's my favorite character. He got flogged. Um, and then there's the character of uh, CX Wolf, I believe. I think it's Wolfric is his like master, you know, but Wolfric could have had his effeminate hands cut off for yeah. all those things that he steals. Oh my goodness. Can I say something? We, we have to talk about <laughs> I don't, we don't have enough time right now to say a lot about CX Wolf. Oh. Maybe we can do that. But I just want to leave this section on the thought. And Herds, I wanted to know what you felt at this point in the book. Uh-huh. Seekswolf has the energy of someone who is about to be killed, right? We've seen him just enough that we know where he is, <laughs> but not enough that we really, we don't really care know about, about him. if he dies, Well, right? he's, I mean, to, to put it a certain way, he's portrayed as eccentric and kind of as a bad dude. So as far as characters to be, you know, a, a horribly murdered... He, you know, I wouldn't feel too bad if he got killed. It makes sense. sense. Anyway, we should wrap this bit of the discussion <laughs> here and we'll be back with the mystery. At the end of the show, we are discussing Absolution by Murder by Peter Tremaine, otherwise known as Peter Beresford Ellis. Chapters 8 to 12. And we'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you. I am joined on the line today by Joanne Byrne, author of The Hemlock Cure, which we were sent by her publishers over at Pegasus Press in the United States, but it's available all around the world. And while we were talking absolution by murder, I wanted to bring this to you and talk a little bit, a little more outside the crime fiction wheel than we'd normally go. But there are so many things about The Hemlock Cure that excited me in terms of what we've been seeing in Absolution by Murder. So Joanne, it's so good to have you on the show. Welcome and thank you for joining us on Death of the Reader. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we've spoken a lot on the show about how historical fiction can let us visit parts of our history that tell us about our own circumstances. How does reaching further back in history change that relationship, you think, compared to more recent historical novels? Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, for me, historical fiction well, it kind of gives us the context of, to how we live now in a way, doesn't it? Because, you know, every, everything that we're experiencing in our current society and the struggles um, that we're dealing with, you know, we, we see the seeds of, of those struggles in the past. And, you know, for me, sometimes that's what's so appealing about historical fiction is being able to kind of access, you know, what, what was going on um, and... I suppose, like the gaps in history as well. So, you know, historical fiction is an opportunity to tell some of those stories that have been written out of history um, because, you know, because of how history is constructed and how documents get put in the archives and that whole, the kind of, um, you know, silence in the archives around um, certain people's stories. So for me, you know, historical fiction is an opportunity to, to fill in some of those gaps. Yeah, well, I thought one thing that was really interesting about this novel is that the town of AM during the setting of this novel cuts itself off from the rest of the world. And I was really curious how much record there even is of that because it's a pretty small town. It cut itself off, so there wouldn't have been much chance for the rest of the world to know about it. What was the process researching that slice of history like for you, given the context in which the novel is set? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's... um. 
so the, it's a village um, called um, Eam. So it's oh, um, my mistake. <laughs> no, no, I know no one ever knows how to pronounce it. In fact, it was interesting because my UK publisher was quite keen to get the, the name of the village into the title of the book, and I had kind of said, "Oh, it would be real struggling if we do that because you know it's spelled E Y A M, so everyone wants to kind of say Eam or you know." Um, Eam is a tiny village and its story locally is so well known and actually um, a lot of the events that happened have been so well documented and there were books as well written um, not too long after the village had gone into lockdown and this amazing story had happened where just shut themselves away to prevent the plague from spreading to kind of nearby towns and villages. Yeah, I I thought it was really interesting because one of the core tensions of the novel is May and Isabel kind of navigating the harrowing relationship that they have with May's father, Wolfric. And we can kind of get to see a lot of his thought process through his letters, how they're influenced by religion. I thought that the other thing that paralleled that nicely was despite not being our normal solving a murder affair that we tend to cover on the show, there's a very crime fiction touch with the intrigue and particularly the kind of grisly morbidity of the story because of the association with the plague. Why was it so important not to pull punches on the the broader just grisliness of the context of this story? It just comes down to that... um that need, I think, to not look away from the difficult things in life and the fact that life is difficult and grisly and for some and that that kind of in in terms of personal relationships and abuse and control. I I don't I don't wish uh hope that I haven't in any way kind of glorified I'm sure I haven't glorified any of the violence in the novel, you know, and I don't think you need very much of that um, in there to kind of get a sense of the sort of horror of it. But yeah, I kind of like don't want to sanitize. I think there's some serious themes in the novel and I don't want to kind of just gloss over those and I don't want to sanitize it. Um, and so though that element um, of that kind of, I suppose, the domestic abuse in, in modern terms, that's how we would see it, of course, not that, you know, but yeah, I didn't. I didn't want to gloss over that. I, I thought the other thing that was really fascinating about your approach to the grizzly things is that you know because we see bodies drifting down rivers, because we see people being so horribly sick, because we deal with all of this very up, very upfront. It also kind of gave you license to get a bit more into the weeds about other stuff that some other books would kind of shy away on because it's like a bit too much detail, like the actual nature of the medicine and how that's done. Ooh, that's really interesting. Oh, I haven't. Yeah, I mean, I think I I do, I am drawn to the aspects of humanity that are, you know, just like the real, the real stuff, you know, life and death and birth and, you know, the kind of physicality of what we are as human beings, the herbalism, the medicine, you know, that felt like uh, because May wants to be an apothecary and and at the time of course 17th century it's like the birth of um, science as we know it and medicine was kind of moving on so quickly Um, it felt like it was a really great way to be able to uh, bring that period of time to life and in terms of like the grisly you know London had been decimated literally were you know corpses piled up and bodies floating down the river and the wealthy people had just fled and left the city. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, to see that and then see it alongside the Royal Society and all the kind of, you know, the medis- medical side of things. Um, I guess just that contrast, really. But yeah, it is 
it is quite grisly, isn't it, really? It is. It's also kind of fascinating thinking of like Eam as this very still village era village when London, you know, feels like almost a different era of modernity in the way that they're portrayed in the stories. But that's also kind of just true to how London was relative to villages in the rest of England at the time. Yes. Yeah, I think so. And um, actually, in terms of, you know, um, one of the decisions I had to make um, in the novel of whether to have an apothecary or whether to have a herbalist, because really an apothecary wouldn't have been found in a little village. That actually, you know, the kind of modern life was coming on leaps and bounds, but in but probably more in the cities. But I just thought an apothecary was much much more interesting and kind of dabbled in you know, more advanced and complicated medicines involving distilling and all that kind of um, lovely stuff. I think it also does a really good job of establishing May as a character where, like, despite her hardship, she is still aspirational to improve on the work of her father. Like, I can do better than this horrible man. And having that as an apothecary kind of lends, you know, her character an era of foresight where she's reaching towards what the next era of medicine would be yes absolutely um and wanting yeah kind of wanting to transcend her upbringing and transcend the village in a way um and you know through what happens to her she's starting to uh, look beyond her village and and imagine herself out there in the world maybe doing something different you know pursuing her ambition. Yeah, I, I guess the last thing that I wanted to touch on that I've been shying away from just in the off chance that I end up deciding that it's spoilers when I get around to editing this is that one of the really compelling historical angles you've taken in this book is that one of its most present voices, Leah, died before the story begins. And in some ways it parallels how we read history, kind of distant and intangible, but very real. How did she end up in the narrator's chair for you? Do you know, I can't actually remember how, at what point it, uh, she kind of came in. Because when I was in my very early drafts, she we didn't have uh, Leah as a narrator. It felt important that Leah had a chance to kind of redeem herself and to reimagine her relationship with her sister. So in her life, you know, she had uh, a difficult relationship with May. Um, and I think that... Partly her narrating the story is, you know, it's her story, it's her narrative as well. And that, and it's to do with her kind of working out, um, you know, the part that she's played and, and her moving on from that, I guess. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's like, it's so powerful and compelling, but it's also so hard to like talk about when I'm trying not to spoil the book for people because I'm like oh yeah you know it's great we get to hear from this other character who's kind of like this ghostly voice narrating the whole thing and I just have to like shy back a bit from the edge so that I don't take away some of the great crime fictiony twists that you've managed to fit into this novel that is otherwise anything but yeah absolutely I think I'm I it's interesting because she's such an important character to me but yes I really struggle it, when I'm doing events I really struggle to talk about Leah because there's so much I want to say and I, I know you can't really say very much because it, almost everything that I could say would, would give away <laughs> It's such a challenge, but I think that's also one of the things that attracted me so much to this book is that I'm like, I I see the things that I love about crime fiction in this book done so well and why I'm so happy to like feature this on Death of the Reader is that, you know, e even though this tells a very different story, you know, the, those tools crossing genres and influencing the way that Leah makes the story so compelling. It's just so much fun. Oh, thank you. That's so lovely to hear you speak of 
uh, a pair like that. Alrighty. Well, Joanne, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It has been an absolute treat. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been really lovely. Thank you. And of course, once again, a thank you to Pegasus Books over in the United States for hooking us up with copies. It's also available via Hachette here in Australia, and we'll have links up on the podcast if you want to get yourself a copy. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Absolution by Murder by Peter Tremaine, and we'll be back with more of that in just a second. Stick around. You're on to SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are discussing Absolution by Murder by Peter Tremaine, chapters 8 to 12. And it is the last chance that I have to give my answers. (laughs) And the answer is the gays. What do you mean, Isle of Lesbo? (laughs) What are we doing here? (laughs) Would you like to elaborate on that? (laughs) Is that your your final answer? (laughs) Do I need to elaborate? I, mean, I feel like it's pretty self I feel self like you should elaborate for those of us who have not uh, read the book all the way through or have not seen the, uh, the the clues as they stand. But yeah, who's who's the killer? What's the motivation? You know, all the good stuff. We're recording this episode ahead. <laughs> uh, it's currently Easter, which is quite fitting yes, because well, we talk about the history of Easter mm-hmm. in this book, which I, I found funny. I was sitting down with my, my father over the Easter weekend. And I said, I'm reading a murder mystery at the oh, moment. No. I'm going to read the historical note out at the beginning of the book for you. And I want you to tell me <laughs> the yep. answer to this murder mystery. And I read the historical note to him and he said, well, it, it's obviously going to be, you know, to do with the relationships between these characters. This is, we're looking at a scorned lover here. Hell hath no fury and all That's that. That's crazy. I thought it was a political and or religious thing. That's what King Oswald <laughs> seems to think it is. And yeah, I trust his opinion. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> and then I, I gave him a bullet point of a few of the characters and, and a few few notes about things that they, they'd said. Mm-hmm. As soon as I said that Gwyd had studied a little too much Sappho, <laughs> he went, oh, okay, yeah, that, that's the one. Look, I can either <laughs> confirm or deny anything, but Peter has unfortunately confirmed far too much in the opening yep. of this story. For me to be able to deny it. <laughs> I almost wish that I'd said at the start of the story that you just shouldn't read the historical note. It should have been at the end. It definitely should have been at the end because, yeah, the, the whole note about, like, cohabitation and the genders and the obvious smokescreen. Because I think that it is pretty obvious from the beginning that the the murder itself, at least... Uh, is being smokescreened by the political situation. Mm-hmm. That said, I I will be giving you as, uh, I guess technically this is your fourth point based off of some of the other mysteries that are going on in the story because Excellent. Brother Taron is a sketchy guy and I need you to tell me about what he's up to. Also, you need to tell me about Etain's lover who, what is like, what is going on there? She said that she was like betrothed to someone. Is Is that- the murderer is that somebody else? No, no. Like, the murderer. What's... The murderer was the lover scorned okay. by that marriage. That makes sense to me. So, what's going on there? Who who is Sister Attain's lover in this situation? I feel I feel like we have to get this story out of the way of history, so that sure. you know Peter Tremaine doesn't end up writing an alternate history. He's writing in history that he's studying. Sure, sure. It'd make a bit more. Is Athelnoth Athel- isn't a historical character is he? Athelnoth, uh I don't think so. I haven't stumbled across them. And and especially because uh Athelnoth he gets into like a brawl, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Actually there's something about that. Apparently he's he's like a pro Roman guy. So, somebody says that he got in a fist fight. 
But then Athanos says it was one of his juniors and then he like broke up the fight. Yeah, there's, there's a bunch of characters, especially on the like pro-Roman side who are very much portrayed to be a little- uh, Kind of violent, yeah. Yeah, confrontational. Yep. I mean, I've got a list here. Athanos the priest got in a fist fight. Agilbert the Frank is outspoken. And Wilfred of Ripon has a sharp temper. Who is a real person, Who is a right? real person, yes. Yeah, he was the one who made the historical account. And yet King Oswy sides with the Romans in the end. Interesting. I know, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. I don't know my history well enough to begin That's okay. unraveling this thread with any context. So Brother Taran was spotted speaking with some shady characters potentially twice. I, I'm, I'm trying to recall exactly, but he's skulking around. He's speaking with- Oh, wait a minute. I've just <laughs> realized. What have you realized, Flex? <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> Is it Taran's fault? Is that why- is that why Oswe's gonna side? What do you think? Because Taryn's tell me. Taryn's plotting. Taryn's plotting, isn't What's he? What's he plotting? Tell Have me. I what got he's this plotting. backwards. Oh, I've so got this backwards. <laughs> you seem to be a bit all over the place with this book. Is it all a religious debate? Is that is that throwing you for a loop? I think so. That's okay. I like this. Okay, because I was thinking to myself. Obviously, Wolfric and Taryn are in cahoots. That is so clearly why they are put together at the beginning of the book to establish that they can communicate. Sure, sure. And I like it. there's this talk of the plot of an assassination and maybe Ooh. that Ooh. is different to the murder. Oh, here we go. Here comes the conspiracy theory. So what's going on? What's this conspiracy? Is Taryn plotting to kill Oswe? Is that what I've- is that what I've missed here? I feel like I've been a little bit caught up by how straightforward the main mystery is yes. that I've kind of just mm -hmm. soaked in mm -hmm. the external plot mm -hmm. and not really unraveled it. I was, yeah, I was not going to say this, but that is the impression I'm getting. Do you think you can answer my questions now, now that you've had to think about and I've approached you a bit? One question is, what is King Oswe's mindset? That's like a point on its own. You'll get another point for solving the murder. And then the third point is kind of, I want you to answer the questions about Brother Tarrant and his role in the story, as well as Sister Retain's uh, betrothed, whoever that is. Those two are kind of worth a point together if you can get close enough. Do you feel like you can answer those questions? Because Taryn and Wolfric are established to be able to communicate at the start, which is clearly setting up that they're working together and Ulfrith- He's the he's the son of, of King Oswe, but he rules like low, like southern Northumbria, as far as I can tell. He's a petty king. Uh, what's his name? Aelfric or something? Uh, the guy who's found strung up at the start of the book supposedly got into an argument in Wolfric's- He's caught. It's like Viking Mead Hall, I assume. Um, <laughs> I assume that's where Northumbrians drink their <laughs> alcohol. I don't know. There's also something really interesting about the like kind of Saxon war god. Yes, there is. And the way that we introduce Eadolf. Yeah, the captain says, I, I wish that we could follow the war god and I could go to Valhalla. Boy, I hate those wimpy Christian Saxons. Yeah. That's what he says. So there's, there's definitely a suggestion in the way that those characters are all introduced to me that Wolfric is like of the same mind, but he's still right-hand man to someone who Where are we going? Rome. I'm so excited. I feel like 
I, look, I don't want to say anything. I'm just so interested in your thought process here. This book has me on the ropes, it definitely does. It's got me on the yeah. ropes. I definitely think that, and we'll talk about this more in the third week, but I think you've been a little bit overconfident in just hitting the mystery when in my mind, the mystery is so obvious that I have to put points on other things. It very much shows you how I solve these murder mysteries. I'm a... I'm a, I'm a structured, okay. organized, one-track mind. Of course, I am a crazy loose cannon. I, you really I are. will solve everything but the actual murder. <laughs> okay, so let's let's just run down the okay, list. Okay, run down the let's, list. Mm-mm. Let's run down the list of points. Okay. Gwid, Gwid did the murder. His love is scorned. Because That's fine. Attain because Sappho. was going to marry- <laughs> Going to marry who? Athelnoth. So Attain, Attain was definitely like- Marrying politically, if not killed politically. Taryn is collaborating with Wolfric. Yep, and Six Wolf, apparently. To get Wolfric out from under the right hand of Ulfrith. I think he wants to cut himself loose and go back with his god of war. So that's you've covered the question of what is up with Brother Taryn, who is Sister Etain's betrothed, and you think that the killer is Sister Quid because Sappho and King Oswy, you're going. The the answer you gave earlier was that the the Queen Inflade is responsible for kind of pushing him to this, and so she's the reason why he changes his mind. That's your answer. I, th- in broad strokes, yes, but I think the deciding factor is going to end up being the actions of Wolfric. Then there's kind of like a, a vengeful angle, I guess, to him siding with Rome. But like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you seem a bit lost on that question, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to tell you how many points you're getting or not getting, <laughs> but it, it it has been fun watching you try to cobble together an answer at the last minute. <laughs> that has been fun to watch. So uh, you know, I guess we'll I, I guess we'll just lock that in, and I'll I'll mull over. Please do. Let's get out of here. I don't want to think about this and, anymore. And uh, we will we will be back next week with with more Death of the Reader, of course, where we will be covering. Um, Absolution by Murder by Peter Tremaine and we're covering chapters 13 to the end here on Death of the Reader Hooray. on QSCR 107.3 It will soon be over It will soon all be absoluted uh, Hey, You're listening to QSCR 107.3